Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhasa Bhutang dhammang sankhang namasami What I notice uh, in the interviews is that um, quite a few people are saying, you know, that the difficulties in their lives were uh, the times when they have been learning the most. And and I can really relate to that because for me it's just like that too. And when we're in the midst of the difficulties, even we can forget that and think when we're not getting anywhere. But I think really looking back on my life, I can definitely see that the, you know the greatest learning was from things you know who who went in a direction or went in a way I, I really wanted something completely different and then through um, you know not being able to manipulate them or force them to be otherwise I I have you know against my own uh, resistance I have learned a lot from it and and you know this, this we can only see if we are stopping and, and looking back over many, several years of our lives. We can't in the short run; it's not something we can discern. But in the long run, it becomes very obvious. So I think it's very important in the practice to take stock, you know, of one's life and looking back, like just what we are, you know, encouraging all of us to do today. Uh, at the end of the year, it's just one year, but if we see in a context of a longer stretch, certain patterns become apparent, and then we can, you know, see if our practice is actually, you know, going in the right direction, if it bears fruit. And, you know, a second way how we can, you know, look back onto our lives and see if the practice is is going in the right direction is is seeing you know if there's increasing openness to to be willing you know to step back from judging what we're experiencing as as good and bad or bad because you know what in the moment you know looks to be a, a bad thing can turn out to be a very good thing in the long run and there's this one teaching story which I have you know, been sharing already several times, but I'll share it again because I think it's it's a really good story. And it's about um, it's about a, a farmer who who has uh, you know uh, just one horse in order to plow his fields and and lives in a small village and where everybody knows about everybody. And one day this horse goes missing and then everybody in the village has, you know, has 
great concern for this man thinking, you know, how will he cope, you know, his only horse has gone lost and so on and so forth. And he was a very wise man. He said, who knows, you know, let's see what happens next. And then a few days later the horse comes back and brings with it a few other horses. So suddenly then he has several horses and and everybody says, oh, wonderful now, and so on and so forth. And then he says, let's see what happens next. Who knows? And then his son, you know, tries to train the new arrived horses. And while he's doing that, he, he breaks his leg. And, and then everybody says, oh, now he loses, you know, the help of his son. Everything is, he has such a difficult life, and so on and so forth. And the man again says, let's see what happens. Who knows? And then a few days later, uh, some people from the government arrived. They are looking for, you know, drafting able-bodied men to go to war. And the son can't go because he has a broken leg. And then everybody said, "Oh, you're very lucky. Your son has a broken leg. He can't go to war." I think you get the story, Minban. <laughs> so that's how life is. And you know, if we see this in um, our judgments and so on, if you see them in a bigger context, they, they just uh, take on a very different life. And I think the, the practice is all about giving us this bigger context within which this labeling gets a complete different um, A different perspective we get on, on, on our experience and it's not anymore about having imme immediate gratification but it's much more about actually uh, looking through this you know, craving and through these desires which, you know, which are driving us over lifetimes and lifetimes and you know, realizing slowly but surely that we're never going to arrive at that peace through getting what we want. But we, the only chance you know, to arrive at peace is through uh, the end of wanting. And, you know, these three roots of uh, wanting and, you know, driving us from, from one... Uh, point, you know, to the next is in the, in the Buddhist teaching is called tanha or can be translated in, as craving or thirst and the Buddha speaks about three different kinds of craving, three different tanhas. The first one is um, kama tanha or sensual uh, desires, craving for your know, sense pleasures. And the second one is Bhava Dhanha, um, craving for becoming something. And the, the third one is Vipava Dhanha, craving for not becoming something. So those three different uh, cravings or thirsts, they, they drive us on and on and on. And whenever, you know, we... we uh, have one of those wishes fulfilled, after a very short time, the thirst arises again. It's like drinking salt water, drinking ocean water. 
it's it's never gonna steal the thirst. It makes us even more thirsty. That's just why it's compared with burning, you know, burning, the f the burning of thirst. And the practice, you know, wants us to to just pay attention to that burning and understand understand it, you know, f by really. Uh, being with it and, and getting to know it and over time, you know, to, to, to um, arrive at what's called disenchantment. You know, disenchantment with all of those um, things we are thirsting for. Because, you know, in the... when we are thirsty and we're looking at, at something, it, it looks very different than from what it really is because it looks like very desirable, like for example, you know, if we have sexual desire for somebody and we look at them, we don't think about the entrails and the spleen and all of those things, isn't it? What we see is just like something which is there, it, it does appear and it is really there, but it is different than from what it, it appears different than from what it really is, because we get stuck on the surface. And that's, it's with everything like this. And, and there's nothing wrong with it, but it's just not the complete picture. And in order to, you know, f uh, find a way out of suffering, we have to stop long enough and take in the real picture. We take in, have to take in what is really happening, not just the surface, because it's just not enough. And it doesn't mean, you know, that we shouldn't enjoy the beauty of, you know, the, of, of creation because it is very, very beautiful and it is amazing. But we have to see it in a, in a, in a much bigger context, understanding that, you know, this is not all here just for gratifying uh, our desires. But it's all here, you know, for um, waking up. And I brought a very beautiful quote from uh, an American uh, priest, and his name is uh, Thomas Berry. And he says, the universe itself is the primary sacred scripture. So you understand that the universe itself and it's the whole process of evolution is, you know, is teaching us. And we need to taking the teaching. And as Ananda Bodhi was speaking yesterday about uh, the four heavenly messengers, which, you know, the Buddha has, they woke him up from his dream. And he realized that by seeing, you know, a, a dead person and a, a sick person and an old person and then at the end a samana also. But he was realizing it in relationship to his own body, that he will die, that he will get old, that he will get sick and all of that. And I think, you know, nowadays we have a huge a heavenly messenger with us. You know, it's, it's planet Earth itself because it is dying. It looks like there's something going on which is unprecedented, you know, in the, in, since there's human beings around who can uh, reflect on the fact that they are part of an evolutionary process. 
So we are at a time, you know, born, which is is extremely uh, <clears throat> potent, you know, for making a, a, a big shift if that's what we you know able to do that it is it is an open question and it really you know the, the shift which is necessary is to understand the connection between what's going on inside you know that the thirsting that burning and running after you know gratification, sense gratification, or, you know, becoming something or not becoming something, how connected it is to the outside, the burning, you know, the global warming, so to say. It's, it's connected. And if we want to have, you know, an effect in, you know, in responding in, in skillful ways so we can contain that, that um, burning, you know, in, within manageable limits, then we have to really start here to work with this burning first and, and not turning away from it because it's that very inability to work with this burning which, you know, is the, is the root cause for everything else. And we won't be able to... Uh, You know, have any creative uh, impact if we are not turning towards that because within that, uh, what is happening within our own uh, bodies and minds, this is where the um, creativity and where the, the possibility to connect with that greater intelligence, where that is possible. And that's what the Buddha did, you know, when he. As as, you, as Ananda Bodhi said yesterday, you know, when he remembered when he was a small boy, he was sitting under that rose apple tree, and there something happened there, and 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 you know he was willing, you know, to go back there and and start to walk that path. Even there was nobody there who could really tell him how to do it, but he had just there was a certain intuition he had that this was the right path to take. And, and then he went through, you know, until he came to that point, he went through a lot of uh, different um, ideas, you know, which he had about the path, uh, extreme path of extreme indulgence didn't really lead him to any uh, peace. And path of extreme asceticism also didn't lead him to anything. So in the end, he, 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 came, what's, he came to what's called, what is called the, the middle path, or the Noble Eightfold Path, which is you know, the teaching which, which we are all trying to practice. And you know, and what is so special about that path is that it says, you know, neither indulging nor suppression are 
able you know, to bring us to the end of that thirst, but really fully looking at it and uh, being willing you know, to transform it, to go into the fire of that burning. And, and that fire, you know, will, because fire produces light, you know, and that fire will light up the path. The more we are willing, you know, to, to turn towards that fire, the clearer we will see, because it illumines the path. And, or it can be also compared, you know, if you are having, you know, certain uh, ingredients, you know, and if you have a, a hot fire, you can, you can cook a very good nourishing meal out of it. If seeing, so you put it all together onto the fires and, and you attend to it and then slowly, slowly it will all break down, it will transform into, into a nourishing um, meal for us. And so, you know, all of the vicissitudes of life, if we are willing, you know, to cook with them long enough, they, they will become actually food for us, they will nourish us so we can go further on the path. And, you know, the symbol of, uh, of the transformation, the symbol of, of fire is, is, you know, in many, many different ways, uh, in different spiritual traditions, it's depicted as a, as a way how that process can be uh, um, communicated. For example, up there, there's the Mother Mary on the left side, and she, she does like this, she has her heart, and there's a flame coming out of that heart, for example. Or then you know, what's called like the phoenix, who is coming out of the ashes, here. It's going through the fire, and then it's, it's a completely transformed creature comes out of it, very, very powerful and full of energy. Or, you know, what, when we hear about shamans, when they, you know, when they are being called for becoming a shaman, they often, you know, they go, uh, they really completely fall apart, they get very ill, or you know, in some way, you know, make, make a shamanic journey where they, you know, go into the underworld and, you know, get burned and get kind of cut into pieces and fall apart completely and then reassemble themselves. And when they come back, they, they can be very much of, of help to many others because they have lost that fear, you know, of completely falling apart. And... You know, it's what's called like the wounded healer. Somebody who has, you know, has been forced by circumstances or maybe, you know, has been uh, taught how to do this, has been guided how to do this and had the courage to go through it and comes back and can tell the tale and can, can support others to, to do the same. And you know when those those flames when they when they finally you know have been doing the, the the job and then they start to cool down then 
there's the warmth of compassion is left, you know, which is a very healing energy which we can then share with others. But first we have to go through the heat. And, you know, what's, what is it, you know, what makes the, the flames, you know, go up in great heat and, and uh, what fans those flames? And, and according to the Buddha, the, those flames, you know, they are fanned by what's called the eight worldly winds. You know, the diff- this is a, a particular way of expressing all experiences which we can have uh, as human beings and puts it into four pairs of opposites. They're also called like the Loka Dhamma, uh, worldly winds. And there are like four pairs of opposite, and you can't have just the positive one and not the negative one. If you have one, you have to always take both. And that's the deal, you know, in being uh, in this dualistic realm where we are all in. But what we can learn is, you know, to uh, see those pairs of opposites in a, in a bigger in a bigger picture, and then it, you know, increasingly it loses that. Uh, dichotomy, it becomes what's called in the uh, Tibetan teaching one taste and the taste is the taste of liberation and those those four pairs they are gain and loss, pleasure and pain honor and disrepute and praise and blame so you know all of our experiences we can put them in one of those eight boxes and and they, you know, they can really uh, fan the flames of the ego in an amazing way. You know, either we feel, you know, we are the best, or we feel we are the worst. And you know, if we're going consciously through those experiences, then you know, it becomes that that kind of elation and that depression, that difference, you know, between those two, it becomes less and less and. You know, if we meet somebody we call a wise person, they they are people who don't display much uh, elation or depression when they go through those experiences anymore. We can say, oh, they really, you know, they have really lived a conscious life. They they have really seen, you know, impermanence. They've really seen that those things they are just coming and going and. They can all be used, you know, as food for practice. And, you know, today we would like to, you know, suggest that you find, you know, something in your life which very usually trip over it easily, you know, to identify just like one or two or three things which you'd like to pay more attention to for the next year. And, you know, which, where we can, you know, put some of those regrets onto a piece of paper and, and put them into the fire, in the, on the fireplace. And, you know, make like a symbolic act that, you know, we are willing to do a kind of face that fire of those, uh, regrets which we 
would like to, you know, transform. And because often, you know, when we are caught in the midst of those worldly winds, when the flames going really high, then we go unconscious. I mean, I don't mean we are fainting, but I mean unconscious with identification. And, and you know, and, and the awareness is just out of the window, isn't it? At least in my case. And, you know, even if I kind of pick out one or two of those very powerful triggers, then, you know, I'll hope that when the flames are really going high and the winds are blowing really wildly, that I can remember one or two of them. And, you know, putting it on a piece of paper and kind of ritually burning it in, you know, in the front of, of other people who are witnessing it gives it a certain extra, you know, power. And, and then at the same time, you're also speaking out uh, a determination, a resolution for the, for the next year. So, you know, again, when the flames are burning high and when the winds are blowing powerfully, you know, to have this, this determination or this resolution to have it handy, you know, within one's own mind and, and remember, remember, you know, which direction we want to go with our lives. And the Pali word Aditana, you know, consists of two words. Adi means higher and dana means foundation. So, you know, an aditana helps us, you know, to lift ourselves onto a higher foundation, provided we remember it, you know, in, when it's necessary. So, you know, we can, we can take the regret as a, as a wake-up call, and we can take the, the aditana as a, as a support you know, to lift ourselves up onto a higher ground, step by step. And, you know, we can, for example, uh, you know, use a quality which we, are, which we are really admiring in somebody else and which we'd like to, you know, do the same. And then we can use that quality as a, as a support to lift ourselves up it's like, you know, when you climb a mountain, you, you put a rope and then you pull yourself up with a rope. That's what an Aditana is all about. You know, it's, it's like a support system. And especially, you know, if it's used in combination with, with precepts, with ethical foundation, it's, it's especially powerful. And it can protect us, you know, from wasting our time a lot. It can really be a very, uh, like a, a protection from, you know, getting lost. And a reminder for what really matters to us. You know, and another way how we can uh, support, you know, ourselves on the path, not getting lost, 
when the you know winds are blowing powerfully is is to really trust you know that we we do intuitively know what is the right direction to go it's just that we often don't have the the courage or the the um, you know presence of mind to to connect with it and in, in the Buddha's teaching, there's a, a pair of guardians, you know, which can help us, which can help us, you know, to stay on the path. And they are called Hiri and Otaba. And uh, in, in Thailand, and also, for example, in the monastery where we are coming from in Amaravati, they're often like at the entrance of the main temple, on the left and on the right side of the temple. There's two, you know, powerful guardians, and they, you know, they can be, they look quite kind of imposing, very tall, with very amazing outfits, and, and with a staff, where they can make sure that people don't veer off the path. And, and they are reminding us, you know, of our own um, potential and of, of our own uh, aditana, you know, that we are all looking for arriving at, at, uh, at peace with uh, ourselves and with, with the world. And that's why they are called guardians of the world. And the first one is Hiri. The translation uh, for this is uh, conscience or self-respect. And sometimes it's also called uh, like a healthy ability for remorse or a healthy shame. And the other one is called Otapa, which the translation is... Uh, respect for others or concern for others or fear of wrongdoing. So those two, you know, they are basically this externalized depictions of our own, you know, intuitive knowing what's right and it, what's wrong. But the only thing is we have to, you know, be willing to connect with that and not distract ourselves. And that's exactly another point. We we are so used to distract ourselves from our inner experience. So those two guardians, in combination, you know, with with uh, an aditana or a resolution, can be, you know, a very good protection on the on the path. And we just need to be willing, you know, to stop long enough to connect with that. And that stopping, you know, that's something we have to um, train ourselves in. Because the whole world, you know, drives us from one thing to the next and... It is amazing, you know, that you all managed to come here for nine days and and stop that long because it's 
not easy for people to make to have that possibility. It's a great, uh, good um, fortune that you you know that you have the means to do it and that you have that clarity that this is something really worthwhile. I'm sure today there's tons of things going on out there, you know, which are most likely pretty unskillful in terms of uh, waking up. It's going in the opposite direction. And that's what's called, you know, the, uh, a good thing to do. It's, it's pretty crazy, the world we're living in. And it's, you know, it's shouting at us from all sides. And still. So. It's an amazing um, journey, you know, we are all in together. So, you know, to really connect with, with why you have come here, I think that can really help you to find that Aditana for yourself, you know, which can inspire you for the year to come. You know, why have you come here for these nine days? Why, why have you been, you know, why don't you do what the other people are doing? Why don't you want to go unconscious tonight, like most other people do? So to, to connect with that, what what is that, you know? Or what originally brought you onto the path? What was that? That, you know, you probably have somewhere, somebody must have, you know, inspired you. Because I think that's how it often starts, you know, that we, that we meet somebody in our lives who embodies that um, commitment to truth, and and that can, you know, ignite or show us our own yearning for that. And then, you know, a, a, process, a quite mysterious process starts to, to kick in and, and we never know, you know, where it's going to take us. And then I brought another quote of Joanna Macy, who I very much admire for her courage, you know, and for her wisdom. She's a, she lives in Berkeley, and is, she's a, a Buddhist and also an ecologist. And she says, this is a, a quote of hers, or that's no, not a poem, but a saying of hers, it's called walk into opening. I read it again. If a hole appears, just walk through it. See what's on the other side. You will never be lost because this emptiness is central to life, figured in the, into the nature of things. And I think that's what it's meant, you know, with that, that courage to step into that fire, or she calls it a hole, you know, into that which is scary, which is unfamiliar, which is, which we can't really pin down or 
can't control. And, you know, if we have that willingness to step into it, then, you know, we much more, you know, become part of a much bigger whole. And, and we become part of life rather than, you know, always just, you know, tiptoeing on the edges of it. And never, you know, feeling really fully alive. So, you know, there is a, a certain willingness, you know, which we have to bring to our practice, where we have to be willing to, you know, really touch that, the unknown and, and, and open into it. And then the next step will, will, will be there for us. And, you know, on a day like this today, where we are, you know, going into a new year, which is all only just concepts, of course, but we can use those concepts to, you know, to lift up the mind. And, you know, the practice is, is about the skillful use, you know, of frameworks and concepts so that we can, you know, make the most out of it, of what we have uh, available to us. And, you know, this very powerful energy of, of, of burning, of uh, <clears throat> working with our own inner experiences, we, we can't really afford to, um, you know, waste that, that, that process by... Um, living half-heartedly, we have to really fully um, use that energy in an efficient way if we want to really um, walk far on this path. It's not easy at all and it needs our complete uh, dedication. So, you know, that which can feel very uncomfortable and uh, downright wrong sometimes, that's, you know, it feels wrong to the ego at least. It, that's what is needed to really refine, you know, ourselves so that we have more capacity to really get in touch with the truth of the way things are, you know, that we can cultivate that sensitivity which is necessary in order to um, experience into the depths of, of life. Because this, you know, this, the truth is, is very much hidden. Because what the sense organs display for us is just like the surface of, of things. So we need to go deeper, and for that we need to <clears throat> open up and you know put down our 
our need to control everything. And the Buddha is a very good uh, role model. You know, he has done that in a, in a way which is uh, amazing. And we can at least, you know, try to follow in his footsteps to the degree we, we are able to and willing to do. And I find it always very beautiful, this story, you know, when he was sitting under the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya in the night of his enlightenment. Um, you know, he was attacked by the hordes of Mara, which, you know, came to him in, in many different guises to either seduce him or frighten him. And in one of, our, of the monasteries in England, we had a very beautiful depiction of that, uh, of that scene, you know, where he was sitting under the Bodhi tree and there were all of those forces coming at him and they were hurtling at him all kinds of weapons and you know, to scare him away from that seat so that he would just, you know, give up. And he was not giving up, he was not uh, running away. And then all of those weapons, that turned into flowers. It was like, you know, a rain of flowers came down up onto him. And it's a very beautiful way, you know, of, of externalizing that experience, you know, that if we really uh, are willing to turn towards that which looks unacceptable or scary, it turns into a blessing because it, it contains within itself what we have to learn. You know, just like the story with the, with the old man who, where his horse ran away. I mean, this is a very uh, great encouragement for me. I, I always, you know, think about that story because it's so true. And it's so simple. And... I think that's all I would like to say to, tonight. Maybe there's some more. Oh yes, I brought another quote, another little saying of, of Rumi, which I also like very much. And he says, and that's, I think that's for people outside of this uh, retreat and especially, but it's for us as well. <coughs> and it says, sit be still and listen, for you are drunk and we are at the edge of the roof. <laughs> Sit, be still and listen, for you are drunk and we are at the edge of the roof. I think that's really where we are and we'll have to see, you know, if we're going to fall off collectively or if somehow you know, we gain our You know, we gain our intelligence and our willingness to to look more deeply at how we are living.
And also I wanted to mention, you know, um, with Diane brought us a, a little box with uh, with papers from five women from the California State Prison in Folsom, and you know they have made a similar ceremony what we are doing tonight, and they have written down their intentions. And the core intention is to leave behind any habits of body, speech and mind that cause harm to themselves and others. And they've put those intentions in that little box and we're going to burn them also today. And we take them into our circle and you know, share the merits with them. And, and one of those women, she's going to leave the prison on January 11th. And then it's also, Diane also writes here that 40 men at the Folsom State Prison have done a similar ceremony also. So I think they'd be very, you know, pleased to hear that they have been included in our ceremony. And we have been teaching there like two or three months ago. Yeah. And we want to go back next year. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.